You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast, episode 24, for September 7th, 2008. Warning, this episode contains mature themes and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Metamore City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com. Hello, Metamorphs! I am your host, Chris Lester, and I'm back! Did you miss me? Let me tell you, it has been a wild and crazy ride since episode 23. I'm recording this intro on August 27th. It's been five weeks since I quit my job in the title insurance industry and headed out to California to become a teacher. And I've got to say, I've had more amazing experiences in the last five weeks than I've had in the previous three and a half years. First, I got to travel across a huge swath of the United States and visit with a bunch of awesome people. I want to thank everybody who made me feel welcome during my trip, including Cunning Minx and Paul Herring in Chicago, my Aunt Sue, Uncle Lanny, and Cousin Ryan in Springfield, Missouri, Bella and Kevin Connor, Jessica and Jesse Shero, and Nathan Lowell in Denver, Nora Reed in Albuquerque, and C.A. Sizemore, Danny Cutler, Leanne Mabry, Dan Charette, and the entire Farpoint Media family in Phoenix. You guys made that trip the experience of a lifetime, and I'll never forget the time we had together. After I got to California, I stayed with my friend Stina while I waited for my new room to become available, and then with my friends Joe and Sarah while I waited for the new room to get internet service. Big thanks to all three of them for their hospitality, and to my other friends, Art and Stephanie, and their friend Shells, for their help in getting me moved in. About a week after I arrived, I went up into the Santa Cruz Mountains for a five-day-long training retreat then came back for another week and a half of professional development work at my school. This past Monday, August 25th, while Mer Lafferty was storming the charts on Amazon, way to go, Mer, I was facing my first day of school. I'm now on day three, and so far, so good. This is tiring, demanding work, but it's also meaningful and worthwhile, and I'm looking forward to what the future holds. Of course, part of what the future holds is a whole lot of work for me, So I want to take a moment here to thank my faithful production team for their help in getting this podcast running again. Scott Roche and Paulette Jackson have been tireless in getting each chapter into shape, cleaning up my narration and adding in all of the audio from my voice actors. All I have to do is the intro, outro, music, and sound effects, which is still a good bit of work, but it goes a lot faster when I'm working with a clean vocal track. I credit Scott and Paulette, as well as Bill Bowman, for helping us win the award for Best Production at this season's Podcast Peer Awards. This show wouldn't be where it is today without their help, so be sure to check out their own podcasts and say thank you. You can find Scott at spiritualtramp.com and Paulette at flrtpodcast.com. That's Form Letter Rejection Theater. Lastly, I want to thank my good friend Brian Watson for stepping up and providing his story make-believe for the August hiatus. Brian went through a real baptism of fire as he discovered all the things that can go wrong when you're making a podcast. But he never gave up, and I think the final product is something he can justly be proud of. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Alright, I've kept you guys in suspense long enough. Here is the continuation of Making the Cut. Part 1 of Chapter 16, 
But first, Jack Jaffe is going to bring you the story so far. Hello, I'm Jack Jaffe, author of Down the Road, an interactive dark fantasy podcast available at jackjaffe.com. That's J-A-C-K-J-A-F-F-E-E. It's my pleasure to introduce Teresa Jaffe, voice of Down the Road, with the story so far. After being marginalized within the Psy Collective because of his weak telepathic abilities, Daniel Shirabi took radical steps to make himself valuable to the community. Using a magic potion provided by the wizard Artax, Daniel transformed himself temporarily into an androgyne, a trial-sized version of the Curse of Metamorph. In her new female form, Danny Shirabi knew that being a prospective mother would be a guaranteed way of proving her value to the collective, which is obsessed with growing its population as quickly as possible. If the mundane humans ever decide to go to war with the size, the collective wants to be ready. Danny hoped to use her new female status to get into a breeding cell with her longtime love, Rebecca. But first she had to prove to herself that she could be intimate with a man as well. During an outing at a local dance club, she met another ostracized telepath named Jared Tamlin, and they quickly fell head over heels in love with each other. Danny moved in with Jared after only a couple of weeks, and seemed to lose interest in spending time with anyone else. Rebecca, troubled by the prophetic dreams that were part of her own psychic ability, set out to learn what had happened to Daniel. She discovered, to her shock, that Danny had taken on the curse, becoming an androgyne permanently. She and Sasha, one of her co-wives, went to Jared's apartment to investigate, hoping to discover what could have caused Daniel to do something so drastic without talking to his friends about it first. Becca used her ESP to channel a vision of Danny and Jared, which led her to a frightening discovery. Somehow, Jared could make people do what he wanted, changing their innermost desires to match his own. Without even realizing it, Jared was changing Danny into someone else. Rebecca and Sasha rushed to the hospital where Danny worked, and Becca managed to catch Danny alone. She explained her suspicions about Jared and pleaded with Danny to come away with him and get help. To her astonishment, Danny refused. For the first time in years, Danny was happy, and even if someone had made her feel this way, she didn't care. With deliberate savagery, she attacked Rebecca's motivations for intervening, accusing her of trying to sabotage any happiness Danny had managed to find that didn't involve Rebecca. Well, fuck that and fuck you, Danny said. I refuse to be miserable to justify your place as the center of the universe. She left Rebecca lying on the floor of the hospital weeping, with Danny's last taunt ringing in her ears. Your boyfriend is dead, Rebecca Brower. You killed him the day you left. And if you don't like what I've become, then fuck you, because you don't have anyone to blame but yourself. Meanwhile, Rebecca's cell husband Brian, her co-wife Fiona, and the supernaturally lucky runner named Callie Linder are preparing to raid the offices of V-Count Security Solutions, a front organization for the Vampire Crime Syndicate. The Psy Collective believes that V-Count is storing the plans for a new biological weapon that the vampires intend to use against telepaths. Brian and his team missed their chance to steal the information when it was first smuggled into the city. Now they have one last chance to redeem themselves. Chapter 16 
Sasha came out of her hiding spot and rushed to Rebecca's side as soon as she saw her fall. She wrapped her arms around her sobbing lover and tried to suppress her rage at Danny Sharabi. Part of her wanted to chase down the other woman and hit her with a psychic blast that would shut down her higher brain functions for the next week or two. It wouldn't accomplish anything, though, and Rebecca wouldn't want her to do it, so she tried to focus past her own feelings and offer Rebecca whatever strength and focus she could manage. I wish Fiona were here. She's better at this part than I am. Fiona. That brought up a whole other set of problems that she didn't have time to deal with right now. Her heart still ached from the fight between Fiona and Rebecca this morning. She hoped that Miriam would be able to say something to Fee that would get through to her, but she wasn't optimistic about her chances. Sasha had been Fiona's closest friend since the age of 13, and her lover since the age of 16, and Sasha still found that there were things that Fiona held back from her. She didn't know what had made Fiona so afraid of making herself vulnerable, but it had created a fault line that ran straight through the middle of their family. With the added pressure the hive was putting on them, and now this trouble with Rebecca and Danny, the cracks were starting to show. That scared Sasha more than she wanted to admit. This family was the center of her universe, and the idea that it might fall apart in the face of hardship terrified her more than death itself. As she helped the weeping Rebecca to her feet, she vowed that she would do anything, sacrifice anything, in order to keep her family together. Rebecca took a deep, shuddering breath, then coughed as she tried to find her voice. (laughs) It's... it's worse than I thought. I thought maybe I could get through to her if he wasn't there, but... oh, God. Stay with me, Bex, Sasha urged, as she led the way back down the hall. We're not finished yet. Rebecca looked up at her, surprised. What can we do against that? I'm not sure yet but I think I know where to start. She pulled out her phone and dialed the number. Hello? Nathan, it's Sasha. I need you to look someone up for me. If I can. What's the name? Sasha clenched her teeth. Get me whatever you can dig up on a wizard named Artax. Artax? He runs the Spells for You magic shop. I thought everyone knew that. He read off the address, and Sasha pulled out a pen and wrote it on the back of her hand. Funny you should mention him, actually. He's the guy who did the potion Danny used to take the curse for a test drive. Figures. Thanks for the info, Nate. No problem. What do you need him for, anyway? He's the only person who's gotten a close look at Danny's head since all of this happened. I've got some questions for that son of a bitch. Spells for You was closed by the time Sasha and Rebecca reached it, but the lights were still on, and Sasha wasn't about to take no for an answer. She pounded on the door with one small fist until a gray-haired man in a bathrobe came slouching out of the back room to answer it. If you're attempting to put me in a more accommodating mood, you are failing miserably. We can pay you well. That's a start. Come in if you're coming, Ms. King. Sasha blinked. He is a wizard. He scried that we were coming, and what we wanted before we finished parking the skimmer. Artax turned and looked at her, his bushy eyebrows raised. Yes, that's right. You seem to have a rather impressive foresight yourself, Miss Brower. She shrugged and blushed. I am an Asper, you know. Unexpectedly, Artax laughed. (laughs) 
Quite so, my dear. Come inside, please, and I'll get you a seat. Pregnancy is never kind to the feet or the back, and unlike some of my colleagues, I know that from experience. The old man turned and headed back into his shop. Sasha exchanged a puzzled look with Rebecca, then shrugged and followed him. Artax took them to his office in the back, where he offered the one-cushioned chair to Rebecca and took a plastic chair for himself. He listened intently as Rebecca and Sasha related the details of their encounter with Danny, as well as the strange changes in Nathan's behavior and the vision Rebecca had channeled in Jared's apartment. The wizard made notes on a legal pad as they spoke, and occasionally stopped them to ask a few clarifying questions. When they had finished, he grunted thoughtfully to himself and set the pad aside. So, what do you think? The old man's eyes grew distant, and he chewed on the end of his pen. Nearly a minute passed before he finally spoke. I was afraid of this. Sasha felt her eyebrows go up. You were? Danny said you told her that it was impossible to change a person's soul. Artax snorted. Typical. They always hear what they want to hear. Then you didn't say it's impossible? He shook his head. I told her that we know piss all about the soul or how it works. If there's a way to change someone's soul without any sign of tampering, I've never heard of it. But that's not the same as saying it's impossible. Is there anything we can do to help Daniel? Artax tapped the end of his pen against his lips. Possibly. But are you certain it's the best choice, Miss Brower? It might be kinder to leave her as she is. Rebecca shook her head firmly. You want me to leave her with a guy who can make her do whatever he wants? No way. She lowered her eyes and sighed. She may be happy, but she's losing herself. Daniel would never have said those things to me. She's right. I know Dee pretty well, and that wasn't him. Her. Whatever. Artax nodded. Very well. I have an idea for something that may help. Wait here. He returned a few minutes later with a scroll, three candles, and a stoppered vial. Ritual magic? Hmm. Artax grunted in acknowledgement. You're a lucky woman, Miss Brower he said, setting the spell components on the desk in front of Rebecca. Since my last meeting with Miss Shirabi, I've been doing a bit of research into this area myself. As I said, there's next to nothing on Solor in the published literature. But I called in a favor and managed to get a few days with a very old text on the subject. If my calculations are correct, then Danny's curse may be the one thing that allows you to reach her. Rebecca frowned. What? Why? Bifurcation. The androgyne version of the curse of Metamor splits the soul into two aspects. It's an oversimplification to call them male and female. Souls aren't inherently sexual, but that's how they express themselves when they're filtered through a human brain. The upshot of it is that where you once had one essential nature, you now have two. Wait a minute. I thought that bifurcation only happens when you have several generations of androgynes in a row. A first-generation androgyne is still the same person in both sexes, but after six or seven generations, you basically have two people in the same body. That is the way it's usually presented, but it's not quite the truth. The bifurcation always happens, but in the low-order generations, the two souls normally cooperate with each other closely. 
The split becomes easier to spot in subsequent generations because the curse does something to the genetic code that makes it easier for the brain to handle parallel processing from two souls. When your brain is fully formed, it isn't able to change very much. But in the children, the effects get stronger with each new generation that takes the curse. So, Danny's souls are like two teeps in a gestalt? Not quite. Danny's been using an imitation of the curse that I crafted myself. Superficially, the effects are identical, but there's no true bifurcation. I shan't bore you with the details, but the illusion of two personalities is constructed on the mental level. I'm good, lass, but even I can't split a soul. But Danny just had her suppression chip removed this morning. Exactly. The curse is taking hold of her, but it won't be complete for another 12 to 24 hours. Once the bifurcation takes place, you'll have the chance to help her. But how? I'm sorry, Mr. Artax, but I still don't understand what we're supposed to do. I'm getting there, dearie. Bear with me. Artax settled back into his seat and picked up the scroll. If your information is correct, then Jared Tamlin has somehow been suppressing the part of Danny's personality that you knew as Daniel. Her personality has already been fractured along the lines of masculine and feminine identity. When the curse takes hold of her, the bifurcation in her soul is going to follow that fault line and split her down the middle. Now Jared has already been here once to buy a second dose of the pseudo-curse for Danny, so it's safe to say that her feminine side is the only part of her that he's interested in. After the split, his subconscious desires will be focused completely on the female soul, which should leave the male soul, the Daniel personality, free to be himself again. He waved the scroll in his hands. This incantation will temporarily strengthen the Daniel personality, giving him a chance to come back to the surface. Rebecca reached for the scroll. This will turn her back into Daniel? Artax pulled it out of her reach. No, it just alters the balance of power between the two personalities. Daniel will get more of the brain's processing power than he's been able to use lately, and if he wants to come out, he'll be able to. But he won't have to take control. Artax chuckled. It wasn't a pleasant sound. <laughs> also, he's likely to be a bit adulpated at first. The bifurcation is just now starting to happen, and it may take some time before he's self-aware enough to do anything. How do we do the ritual? It's all on the scroll. Just follow the directions. You'll need some open floor space and a sympathetic link of some sort to connect you to Daniel. I have pictures, and a locket he gave me for my 18th birthday. That will work. Remember, you have to wait until the curse has finished taking hold of Danny before you cast the spell. Otherwise, it's useless. He offered the scroll to Rebecca, and she took it. How will I know when that is? The old man smirked. You're an esper, my dear. I'm sure something will come to you. Friday, June 21st, Viscount Security Solutions, Main Office. Brian swiped his hand over the electronic card reader, and the door to the office opened obediently. He slipped inside and crouched behind the desk, leaving the lights off as he powered up the computer. Things were going well. He, Fiona, Sasha, and Miriam Bakhtivar, together with her team of PSYOP agents, had entered Viscount's offices two hours ago, posing as a tour group from a computer networking firm. 
According to their cover story, their company had recently been raided by industrial spies, and they were looking to increase security at their home office. They had been under constant supervision during the tour of the facility, but Brian had used the time to familiarize himself with the floor plan and identify likely access points for the second phase of the mission. Less than a minute ago, Fiona had waylaid their escort in the restroom during lunch, and Sasha had given the woman a false memory that Brian had left the group to deal with an emergency back at the home office. With the human element of Viscount's security thus out of the way, Brian was able to slip away from the rest of the group and hide inside this office, whose occupant had taken the day off. The computer's operating system came online and asked Brian for his username and password. Brian put his finger into the data port and extended his consciousness into the system, intending to bypass the OS and give himself administrator-level access. The Spectre was there waiting for him. Brian had only milliseconds to react. He used five of them to raise a virtual barrier between his mind and his attacker, forcing the system to enter a verification protocol before taking further action. That bought him nearly a second of real time, which he used to hide himself inside a low-priority maintenance subroutine. The Spectre broke through the barrier moments later and clawed its way back into active memory, scanning through open programs in the effort to find the intruder. Brian steadied himself and tried to catch his virtual breath. The Spectre, more formally known as the Security Protocol for Electronic Countermeasures and Tactical Infiltration Resistance, was one of the nastiest defensive programs in existence. An elaborate set of heuristic algorithms fused with an elemental spirit of air, the Spectre lived on a firmware module installed on the network's server. It couldn't be cracked, overwritten, reprogrammed, or subverted. It had its own independent power supply, multiple redundant access points into the network, and the ability to send an electric shock directly into the hardware of anyone attempting to crack the network. If you were unlucky enough to be physically wired into the system at the time, either through a spelljack or through a direct link like the one Brian was using, the shock would fry your nervous system as well. Spectres were illegal for private companies to use, and Brian had only seen three or four government systems that used them, one of them being the network at MID. He wasn't really surprised that the Vampire Syndicate had gotten their hands on one, but it did underscore exactly how serious they were about protecting this office and its secrets. He pulled himself out of the system and sat back against the wall. Reaching into a hidden pocket on the inside of his pants, he pulled out three portable mini-drives, one black, the others red. He turned off the computer's power supply and turned it back on again, forcing it into a hard reboot then inserted the mini-drives into three of the computer's data ports while it was still starting up. For good measure, he unplugged the network cable from the jack on the wall. The black drive contained a set of instructions that would bypass the computer's normal startup routine, ignoring the operating system on the computer's hard disk and running a simplified OS directly from the mini-drive itself. Brian wouldn't be able to access anything on Viscount's network, nor could he use any programs on this unit that required files or user privileges granted from server-side, but he would be able to access the computer's memory and hard disk, and the Spectre wouldn't be able to interfere. Normally, he used this drive to help resurrect a computer after a catastrophic system crash, so he appreciated the irony of using it for what he currently had in mind. With the emergency OS up and running, Brian accessed the two red mini-drives and installed their contents onto the computer's hard disk. Unlike the Black Drive, these were not rescue equipment. They were weapons. 
Each drive contained over 10,000 computer viruses, crafted by some of the most ingenious and diabolical computer crackers the world had ever seen. They all operated in different ways and triggered under different circumstances, but any one of them could cause serious damage if it escaped into the network and propagated itself on other users' machines. Brian issued instructions for each of them to start running the next time that the computer was turned on. With the trap set, he turned off the computer, unplugged the mini-drives, plugged in the network cable, and then started it up again. As the OS started up, he put his finger into the data port and sent himself back into the machine. He arrived to find the system in a state of chaos worthy of Lord Klepnos himself. His malicious programs were popping into active memory all over the place, rampaging through the system registry and assaulting the network connections in an effort to escape into other computers in the office. The Spectre chased after them like a cat in a room full of frightened mice, overwhelmed by the sheer number of simultaneous intrusions. It would catch them all in time, but meanwhile Brian slipped by unnoticed and quietly granted himself an administrator-level username and password. He allowed himself a smile and silently thanked the Hive for sending him to MID. Very few people knew about the Spectre's weakness, and most of those who did had been members of Brian's department. Brian accessed the security system and edited the tracking logs to show that he had left and turned in his badge. As far as Viscount was concerned, he no longer existed inside their offices. Satisfied, he turned off the machine and went to the shelves at the back of the room. The ceiling tiles were the cheap gypsum variety found in most modern offices, and he was able to push them up and slide them out of the way without difficulty. Hoisting himself up into the rafters was a little trickier, and for the thousandth time he cursed the five kilos of excess weight that he could never seem to work off. At last he pulled himself up onto a steel support girder and slid the ceiling tile back into place. There might be a fine dusting of gypsum powder on the shelves and desk below, but it was unlikely that the security guards would notice any sign of his intrusion. He sent a tendril of thought out into the mind link. I'm in position. Copy that, Sasha replied. We're finishing up with lunch right now. I'm guessing we'll be out of here in another hour. After that, I'm heading back to the nest to help Rebecca. Good. For what it's worth, I hope the two of you are able to help Daniel. Just be careful. You too, love. I'll be praying for you. Brian smiled. I'll take all of those we can get. Leaning back against a support column, he closed his eyes and waited for nightfall. As she left the hospital that evening, Danny waved goodbye to her co-workers at the front desk. Have a good weekend, ladies! You too, Danny. The receptionist called back. Yeesh, look at you, you're glowing. You got a hot date or something? Danny grinned as a familiar thrill ran through her. Every night. See you girls on Monday. As she headed out to the bus stop, she pulled out her phone and dialed Jared's number. He picked up on the second ring. Tamlin here. Is this the office of the luckiest man in the world? He chuckled. (laughs) It is now. Look, I'm going to be stuck here a little while longer finishing this report, but I have something special planned for tonight. Special, eh? Should I dig out my special dress for the occasion? Actually, no. You're going to want jeans for this. Jeans and sturdy, comfortable shoes. Danny frowned quizzically. Is there some new definition of special that I'm not familiar with? Trust me, he said, the smile evident in his voice. You're going to like this. 
She chuckled at that. All right, Mr. Mysterious, you have your fun. I'll just... She broke off in mid-sentence as a strange tingling sensation ran through her. Her vision faded and she stumbled, suddenly dizzy. She grabbed hold of the sign by the bus stop and managed to keep herself from falling. She felt something tugging at the back of her mind, and for an instant she got the crazy feeling that there was someone else inside her head with her. And then, just as quickly as the sensation had come, it was gone. She was dimly aware that Jared was calling her name. Yeah, I'm here, she said, as her vision cleared up once more. What happened? Are you alright? I'm fine. The doc said I might experience a few weird sensations as the curse finished taking hold. I think I just got the last of it. She laughed as a sudden, giddy joy filled her heart. Looks like it's official, Jared. Danny Sharabi is here for good. It's happened. Sasha looked up at Rebecca. She was dressed in her coveralls and thoroughly splattered with paint, but her eyes were clear and focused. You're sure? Rebecca nodded emphatically. I've been channeling Danny all afternoon. It was easy to find her once I knew what to look for. I know the soul splits happen because now I can feel her and Daniel. Come and see for yourself. Sasha followed Rebecca back into her studio, where a series of images of Danny were drawing along the walls. The painting that stood on the easel was a dramatic image of one person splitting into two, male and female, with each of them reaching in opposite directions. Sasha saw their faces and immediately recognized Daniel and Danny. All right. We're all set up for the spell, so let's do this. And hope we don't screw it up. Sasha had never really liked magic. Oh, certainly she understood the need for it, but she looked at it the way many people looked at nuclear power. It was mysterious, finicky, and really, really dangerous if it got out of control. Sasha had spent her childhood in a small rural town dominated by the Ecclesia, They had used magic only sparingly, and with tremendous caution. Here in Metamore City, which depended on powerful magic just to remain standing, people seemed far too cavalier about using it, and ritual magic was the worst of all. The great thing about ritual magic was that anyone could do it. A few simple instructions, some reagents, and a written incantation provided by a wizard were all that you needed for most spells. As far as Sasha was concerned, that was also the terrifying thing about ritual magic. Mystical, arcane energies beyond the ken of mortal man could be summoned forth to change the shape of reality by bored university students with some spending money in an hour of spare time. Sasha much preferred the psionic powers of the collective. The mages might call them spookies, but at least their power came from inside themselves. She frowned. Not that that's kept Jared Tamlin from causing a whole lot of trouble. Assuming that Becca is right and we aren't all just being paranoid for nothing. Sasha had prepared the ritual spell in the dining area, after sliding the table out of the way to make room on the floor. A chalk circle about 18 decimeters wide established the outer limits of the casting area, and the three candles formed an equilateral triangle inside it. A smaller chalk circle inside the triangle held a photograph of Daniel and the locket that he had given Rebecca. The scroll and the stoppered vial sat on the kitchen counter next to a book of matches. Rebecca looked over the setup carefully. Everything looks right to me. I'm not getting any danger sense from it, so I think it's okay. Sasha picked up the scroll, then handed the vial and the matches to Rebecca. After you. 
She helped Rebecca get down on her knees in the middle of the circle, then double-checked the circle to make sure that there were no breaks in the chalk line. Satisfied, she stepped in behind Rebecca and unrolled the scroll. Okay. Got the matches ready? Go. Rebecca struck a match and lit the first candle while Sasha began chanting the incantation. Artax had been thoughtful enough to write it phonetically, using a large and easy-to-read font. It came out sounding gentle and musical, and Sasha wondered if it was based on Elvish. Namore te inshallah filis. Rebecca reached over to their left and lit the second candle. Turiona and Vorna Montis. Reaching to the right, Rebecca lit the third candle. Mantuarna sealva kimsho. As soon as the third candle was lit, a curtain of light rose up around the edges of the circle, creating a shimmering barrier between them and the room beyond. Rebecca let out a little squeak of surprise, but she kept her hand steady as she withdrew the stopper from the vial. Alealma Norvala Simco. Rebecca upended the vial over the photograph and the locket, pouring out a fine, sparkling powder. It covered the contents of the smaller circle and immediately began to glow with a soft blue light. Daniel Sharabi, Rebecca said, speaking his name firmly and clearly. Daniel Sharabi. Daniel Sharabi. The glowing powder vanished into the photograph and the locket, which began to glow with blue light themselves. Sasha spoke the final word of the incantation. Kuivo! There was a bright flash of blue-white light, a rush of wind, and a sound like a thunderclap. When Sasha could see again, the ring of light around the circle had vanished, and the objects in front of Rebecca had stopped glowing. The candles had been extinguished as well, so quickly and so completely that they were not even smoldering. Rebecca craned her neck to look up at her. Did it work? She asked, her voice hovering between fear and hope. Sasha grimaced. It did something. Whether it did what we wanted, there's only one way to find out. So, um, how are you doing over there? Fiona turned her impassive green eyes on Callie. Fine. You? Callie looked down at the nearly 500 meters of open air below her. Then she looked back up at her climbing harness and the slender cable attached to the railing ten meters above her. Oh, you know. She said, forcing herself to smile. Just hanging around. The other woman's eyes narrowed slightly and she looked away, saying nothing. Callie sighed. (sighs) Everybody's a critic. Normally, Callie might not have bothered trying to get a reaction out of Fiona, but this op was making her nervous. She wasn't particularly afraid of heights, but there was something intimidating about hanging suspended inside one of the tower's support columns. The shaft ran from the base of the building all the way to its summit, a hollow tube 20 meters across and over 600 meters tall. Meter-thick walls of steel and spell-hardened concrete surrounded them on all sides, the surface far too smooth to climb without repelling equipment. Sixteen stories below them lay the landing for Viscount's emergency staircase, which spiraled down the inside of the column to the exit on the fourth skyway level. That staircase would have been the obvious way to reach Viscount's escape hatches, but because it was obvious, it was also trapped, warded, and monitored via camera. 
Brian had told them that he couldn't deal with all the nasty little surprises down there while also looping the camera feeds and keeping the alarms from tripping. So they had decided to bypass the issue entirely by coming at the landing from above. Viscount's designers had apparently never seriously considered the possibility that someone might try to climb down from the fifth skyway to reach an escape hatch that had no visible handles, hinges, or weak spots. Callie looked down again and fought off a wave of vertigo. There's probably a damned good reason for that. This has got to be the second craziest thing you've ever done. She turned back to Fiona. Any word from Brian yet? Negative. The woman's eyes grew distant for a minute, as if she were trying to do a difficult math problem in her head. Elder Bakhtavar reports that her espers see no sign of the door opening yet. Got it. Callie hung there for another minute, thinking. She frowned as something occurred to her. Hey, how come Sasha and Rebecca aren't in on this? I thought they were going to be our eyes and ears for this op. Fiona's mouth pressed into a thin line. Change of plans. They were needed elsewhere. Callie raised an eyebrow. We're trying to pull off the biggest size in the last five years against the biggest organized crime outfit on the planet. What's more important than that? Fiona looked away. The answer to that, apparently, is subject to interpretation. Callie's communicator beeped once, and Fiona's demeanor became instantly calm and detached. It is time. Disengaging the locks on their climbing cables, Fiona and Callie rappelled down the side of the wall toward the landing. Callie felt a thrill of adrenaline coursing through her. Hanging in one place wasn't her idea of a good time, but this was something she never got tired of. As the hatch came into view below, Callie saw Brian peeking his head out and looking up at them. The hallway beyond the hatch was as dark as the shaft itself, but Callie's supernaturally enhanced night vision allowed her to spot him without any trouble. He gave them a quick grin as they touched down and unhooked themselves from their climbing gear. Without a word, they followed him inside and headed for the vault. We'll be back with more of the Metamore City Podcast, right after these messages. Dear author, thank you for submitting your story, but I'm afraid we cannot use it at this time. It just didn't grab me. Grab you? You haven't had it long enough to read it yet. There must be a better way to put my stories out there for people to enjoy. But how? Form Letter Rejection Theater With your host, Paulette Jackson Join us each month as we bring you the best in previously unpublished short fiction, each tale brought to life with dramatic readings by the author and a full voice cast reading the dialogue. Coming soon to flrdpodcast.com. There are many realities in the cosmos. An uneasy truth stands between the most powerful. Yet war is looming, 
in a remote reality cluster lurks a far bigger danger. A dark and terrible secret. Cosmas Productions presents Estelvin's Legacy. Visit Cosmas Productions at cosmas.co.uk. The universe exists for now. Hi, this is Tobias Quackell, Caribbean-born science fiction fantasy author of Crystal Rain, Ragamuffin, and soon to be coming to Sly Mongoose. And you're listening to the Metamore City Podcast. Thanks, Tobias. And that's where we're going to have to stop it for this week, Metamorphs. Chapter 16 was absolutely enormous, so I had to break it into two parts for the show. Tune in next time and we'll find out how things went for our heroes. I want to give special recognition to one of our musical artists in this episode. The music during the magic ritual was Corona Radiata by Nine Inch Nails. This song was part of an album called The Slip, which Trent Reznor released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means that podcasters like me are free to take any of the songs on that album and use them on our shows. This was a very cool thing for Mr. Reznor to do, and kudos to him for taking a stand in support of open media. Incidentally, that means that this episode of Metamore City is also released under an attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license, so you can't sell any derivative works that you might create based on the contents of this show. Now, let's get to some feedback. Hey Chris, it's Eldon KR from the Banter Over Cigarette Podcast. Just called to let you know that I have been very impressed with uh, the recent episodes as of late. I've been catching up on uh, uh, I've been catching up on uh, Murder Evidon Hill because I hadn't listened to it yet. And I also decided to go and listen to uh, the Bill Battings podcast, Case of the Singing Sword. Seeing as eight eight oh eight is constantly nearing, I wanted to catch up on that before I cracked into Pitcher's Pendant. But enough talking about people's podcasts on your voice line. Um, just wanted to give you uh, just lots and lots of praise on the last few episodes, and uh, the sex scene in the last episode was really good. Like you know, like other people said on the voicemail before, you know, people just throw the sex scenes into their work, and it doesn't really do anything with the story. But yours just went in there really well, and it was very nicely done. And I almost wish my girlfriend was awake and didn't have to go to work the next morning uh, after listening to it. And as for the fact that you said you were somewhat nervous about releasing that one, um, personally, I think that you could write about Victor Hincavos murdering puppies by throwing them in a bag and beating his enemies with it while sodomizing that girl he ran off with in the Psy Collective and you'd still get very good praise from that. That's what kind of, uh, that's how good your writing is and how good of a podcast you put together. And um, as far as the most recent episode that you released, I just, I was listening to a watching, washing the dishes and that one turned out really good. And um, I, it was a breath of fresh air from most writing because not a lot of authors throw the whole uh, drama between old friends, fuck you and the horse you rode in on kind of thing. And it was kind of refreshing and 
just you do really good work, and I also enjoyed listening to something that I threw together, put put on somebody else's podcast. Um, so good luck on your trip. Hope you enjoy your new location and your new job. And I can't wait for the hiatus to be up so I can get the next episode. Keep it on the bright side. Bye-bye. Thanks for that very thoughtful message, Alden. The last few episodes have been getting into some raw, serious emotional content that's really stretched me as a writer. And I'm glad to see that it's resonating with people. But why, oh why, did you have to put that image about Victor in my head? Ick. Hi, this is Scott, a.k.a. Spiritual Tramp, author of the podcast novel Archangel, which can be found at www.archangelnovel.com. I was listening to a podcast a while back, I forget which one, and Nobilis came on with a PSA. That's Podcasting Service Announcement. He said that since podcasters like you, Chris Master, don't get paid to do this, and since you all thrive on attention, and that we as listeners should go out of our way to send emails, audio content, phone calls, whatever we could, to encourage the podcasters we enjoy. He said to think of it like paying our bills, so that's what I'm doing. When I think of quality podcasts, the name of Chris Master comes to mind, and I just want to thank you for your hard work. Hey, thanks, Scott. I heard the version of this message that you sent in to my nemesis, P.G. Holyfield. I'm sorry that it took me longer to play it, but, well, hiatus. I'm pleased to know that I made the short list of podcasters whom you feel a need to pay your bills to, though. It definitely helps to keep us going when we get that kind of feedback, even if it is sort of in a uh, form letter format. Hi Chris, it's Richard calling from the UK. Um, just wanted to say how much I'm enjoying Metamore City at the moment. And uh, first, I'd like to thank Laura, who I uh, was chatting to at the Brave Men Run Webathon, who let me know about Metamore City. Um, she pointed me in your direction. And I spent the last two or three weeks catching up, listening to every episode that's in the feed. And now you go on a hiatus. So thanks for uh, cliffhangering me in a major way. Really enjoying the. Uh, the stories and making the cards fantastic um, and uh, it's a little bit different to what I've been listening to normally so um, thank you and good luck with the new job and the move. Bye for now. Well you're very welcome Richard. It was my pleasure to cliffhanger you and I have no doubt I'll be doing it again in the near future but hopefully not for another month-long hiatus. And big thanks to Laura for spreading the word about the show. Way to go Laura. Well, that's all the voicemails we received during the break, but I did get some great feedback from a few other sources. We got a lot of comments on the blog, which you can see at metamorecity.com. We also got reviewed by Time Well Wasted at timewww.com, where Gemini had this to say. Good gods, this story is about as wild, rollicking, and wicked as the biggest roller coaster you've ever been on. One minute you're going straight, and then you're whipped around left and right in split-second intervals before you're taking into a calm, chugging line leading up the massive hill. You peek for a split second, able to see into the horizon, and then wham, down the hill, through the loop-de-loop, where everything is turned completely upside down before you're sent scattering through the turns again. I don't think we'll even get the pause of the terminal when it's all over with, and we'll be left with the permanent, holy cow, that was an amazing story. 
right before we turn it back on because it is just that good and you know you missed something, unquote. There's a lot more to the review and I'll put a link in the show notes so you can go read the whole thing if you're interested. Thanks very much to Gemini for helping to spread the words about the show and I'm glad you loved it so much. One of the coolest things to come out of the hiatus, though, was my interview with Cunning Minx at Polyamory Weekly. Apparently, one of her listeners, Rowan Fairgrove, heard that interview and decided to check out Metamore City, and then proceeded to devour the entire podcast in the space of a few days. What made this especially cool is that Rowan lives in San Jose, only about 30 minutes from my new home in Berkeley. When she heard that I needed a new computer desk, she gave me one and she and her husband even drove out here to deliver it to my house. How awesome is that? So yeah, Minx, you are my favorite podcaster for at least the next six months, because being on your show got me free stuff. If you would like to sound off on the show, or send me free stuff, you can call the voicemail line at 206-350-7333, or you can email your comments in text or audio to feedback at metamorecity.com. You can also post your comments on the blog at metamorecity.com or join the Metamore City fan forums at thecursed.org. If you'd like to help spread the word about the show, please leave a review on iTunes or post about us on your blog. And if you're a podcaster and you'd like to interview me on your show, please just let me know. That'll do it for this episode. I'll talk to you again in two weeks. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. Some of the music on this podcast was provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Some sound effects were provided by SoundSnap at soundsnap.com, while others were provided by the Freesound Project located at freesound.iua.upf.edu. Metamore City is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Find out more at creativecommons.org.